Well, I am, uh, I am thrilled. Wow, what a crowd. I'm thrilled that you came back. Uh, you know, when a, a Bible teacher forgets the main body of water between France and North Africa, uh, that's kind of disconcerting. And so, but you came back to give me another chance to see if I could redeem myself. I just want you to know I've been studying the Mediterranean in depth this week. You ever have one of those moments where it's just like something you've known for however long? I can't tell you how many biblical maps I have uh, drawn and numbered and, le and, and labeled and everything else in seminary. And then for your mind, you just go blank like that. But you all helped me out, and I sure appreciate it. That's for sure. Uh, go ahead and get your Bibles, if you will, and kind of get them ready, because we're going to look at a couple passages uh, today. Uh, probably more than a couple passages, but we'll get to them in just a minute. But I want to give you a forewarning. Go ahead and open up to uh, Acts chapter 10, and then uh, also 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, you can hold your place there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So Acts chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What I hope to accomplish today is for us to have a... Once again, and, and, and of course, you all are at a, a, a tremendous advantage being in Mark's class because he's teaching you, as you go through church history, he's teaching you so much about what's behind uh, what we believe in our practices and so forth. And uh, that's what brings meaning to that. Uh, everything, and we're going to particularly look at the baptism and the Lord's Supper today as we uh, consider uh, Ulrich Zwingli. But um, still, it, it's, you're at a great advantage to be able to learn those things. And what I hope to accomplish today is for us to have a renewed appreciation for not only where we are today and maybe to value some of those things more deeply and not kind of just uh, speed over significant issues about our faith and practice. Uh, but we'll have a deeper appreciation of that. In fact... Um, when I baptized the little girl this morning in the first service, we had a chance uh, to, back there in the back when I was talking with her to basically tell her some of these uh, things. Is Elise in here, by the way? Is she, are you in here? No, she didn't make it. Okay, but her mom is. There's her mom. Yeah, all right. Uh, but I was able to tell her a little bit about this, and they said, wow, we never knew that. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to be talking about that, as a matter of fact, in, uh, in the uh, uh, Sunday school class, the Mark Lanier Sunday school class. And so I'm, I'm glad that uh, uh, she came. But I hope that we'll have a deeper appreciation of that. Because you know what? People sacrificed tremendously for uh, what we sometimes maybe kind of just take for granted that has been passed down to us. And so I hope we'll have a renewed uh, appreciation for that today. Well, we are going to look at Ulrich Zwingli. And uh, it, Ulrich is spelled a couple different ways if you do your own research. Uh, this is the most common way, but he was born in uh, 1484. We'll just kind of go through some of the, the technical things, some of the facts about his life here, and then we'll get into some other things here in just a minute. He was born January 1st, 1484 in Switzerland, just about seven weeks after the birth of Martin Luther. Isn't that uh, amazing how God had these men that he would use in such a significant way, and they were all roughly about the same age or so forth, at least in the same uh, generation, uh, and, and how they were literally going to turn Europe upside down. Uh, just when he was about five years old, very young, because he was born the third of eight children, so that house was obviously pretty crowded. Uh, his mom and dad were well-respected citizens in the town where they lived. And in fact, his father was a magistrate, and his uh, grandfather had been a magistrate before that. 
uh, but the house is probably pretty crowded. So he got out of there at an early age, at five years old, and went to live with an uncle in 1489 to attend a Latin school in Wesson. And very quickly they began to see, his teachers started noticing that he had a real propensity towards uh, learning Latin and the languages. And so he didn't stay there very long before he, when he turned 10, he went to Basel and spent just two years there. And once again, his teachers noticed that he was very, very good. In fact, he was becoming a scholar in Latin at such an early age. And then he went to another school in Bern. And once again, he also showed uh, great uh, abilities in music as well. Well, while he was in Bern and he was this, you know, a uh, brilliant young man learning Latin, becoming a scholar in Latin, and also had this musical ability, there was some Dominican monks in a monastery there in that area that noticed that and picked up and heard about this. And so they went to Ulrich and they talked with him because he obviously was Catholic and being raised, uh, had been raised Catholic. And so they went and they spoke with him and they persuaded him to join their order. Well, news got back to his mom and dad, and they were not all too happy about it. And so it wasn't long when they found out about it that his father came and took him out of the school and also out of the monastery so that he would not become a Dominican monk. That's not what he had in mind for that. Anyways, then Zwingli entered the University of Vienna in 1498 and was subsequently expelled. He didn't last long there. He would have another stint. It would last a little bit longer. Uh, but when he went in there, you know, don't know exactly what it was. Obviously, he was still young. He was in his early teens. But uh, nevertheless, he was um, uh, expelled because Vienna, the University of Vienna, was, uh, ran about 5,000 students at that time. And it was just like the other major universities in uh, Europe at that time, like Oxford and the University of Paris, is that unlike our universities today, it had the reputation of brawling and wild living and immorality, and basically a lot of the students just partied all the time. And so for this young man from this little small town, that must have been kind of overwhelming to him. But nevertheless, he kind of stayed around, but that it had everything to offer him. The three major um, schools in most of the universities at that time were uh, law, theology, and medicine. And he could have gone in any one of those. And so that, those were the primary emphasis in that day. Imagine you, you, know, you have major universities and uh, where people come from all over Europe to go to. <clears throat> excuse me. By the way, I've got some water up here because I'm taking some uh, antihistamine and my throat's getting dry, so hopefully uh, that won't bother you too much, but I've got to take a, a little swig every once in a while, like right now, excuse me. <laughs> ah, that's good, sorry. If some of you are thirsty, please feel free to excuse yourself and come on back and join us. But um, anyway, so he spent some time there, but it just wasn't meant to be. And so eventually he left... Uh, the University of Vienna and went to the University of Basel in 1502. Now, Basel was quite a contrast, only had about 100 students. But if you'll notice, it only had, uh, I mean, even though it only had 100 students, they had two scholars in particular, Sebastian uh, Brandt and Johann Ruschland. Does anyone remember Johann Ruschland? Remember that name? Maybe from last week. Yeah? Anyone remember that? Okay. He was the uncle or the, or the uh, brother of the great aunt of, who did we study last week? Melanchthon, remember? Philip Melanchthon. 
So uh, he was a Hebrew scholar and very influential, even though he was a Renaissance man. He wasn't a Reformation man. He was a Renaissance man. But still, Luther and uh, Zwingli, in this case, Melanchthon, all drew on his knowledge of Hebrew and also the classics. So even though the school was very small, uh, they had two uh, eminent scholars there. It was deeply rooted in the Renaissance and uh, had a lot of followers of Erasmus uh, that were at that school. Uh, received a Bachelor of Arts in 1504 and he got his Master's in 1506. One of the students that came many years later uh, that had a great influence on another German named Adolf Hitler was Friedrich Nietzsche. And he had once, uh, many years later obviously after Zwingli, uh, also attended the University of Basel. So there's a long line. I think Karl Barth also went there. So there's a long line of German theologians that actually attended that school, so it became well known. One of the speakers that came there was Thomas Wittenbach from the University of Tübingen. And he, uh, before Zwingli left that university, he had a chance to hear him lecture. And he had a profound effect on the young man. Because as you'll see there, uh, it says that Zwingli remembered him as having taught him the sole authority of Scripture, the death of Christ as the only price of forgiveness, and the worthlessness of indulgences. Now, that's pretty significant, right, in that day and time. Because what were some of the major problems in the Catholic Church at that time, at least according to the Reformers? The indulgences, what are they? They sold indulgences uh, sometimes to fund building programs and everything else, but they would sell indulgences. Uh, then also the fact that tradition was seen on equal par with Scripture. So this was pretty radical for him to be teaching about these things. And, but yet it, 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 it lodged in the heart of Ulrich Zwingli. Well, after he left there, after he got his master's, the same year as he got his master's, he was ordained and appointed parish priest at Glarus. And he was there from 1506 to 1516. In fact, he wasn't even ordained yet before they really wanted him to come back or come to this little town. And so they hurried up and ordained him. And then that's when he became the parish priest. And, and, and you have to hand it to him. He really had a shepherd's heart. He really deeply cared for the people and he, had, he took it very, very seriously. In fact, he said in some of his writings, Notwithstanding my youth, the ecclesiastical functions aroused in me more fear than joy, for I knew and I remain convinced that I must give an account for the sheep that should perish through my negligence. So he had a pastor's heart. He wanted to minister to those people. And it was while he was at Glarus that uh, w one of the things that is, was common of the Swiss young men of that day is that they were mercenaries. In other words, they would hire out, they would uh, fight for other countries. Whoever would pay them, uh, they would fight for those countries. And there was a large constituency of uh, mercenaries that came out of this little town here. And so Ulrich Zwingli was a, a chaplain with uh, the, uh, the, the company of, of soldiers that came out of this area. And in fact, there were many times that they fought for the Pope in uh, the wars that uh, uh, the Pope would have to, to wage. And so he would hire a lot of these. Now, here are, if you notice, if you've ever been 
to Italy, if you've ever been to the Vatican, you'll see these guards that are outside with these brightly colored uniforms. Those are Swiss guards. And see, that's where it all goes back to them guarding the Pope or being hired out by the Pope. The Swiss were known for their valor in battle, and they even fought battles for the Pope. Zwingli was a chaplain, and in a, in a battle on behalf of the Pope against the French in 1515, close to 10,000 Swiss troops were slaughtered. Um, and, and so there was a tragedy there. Now, if they were dressed like that, that might explain what happened there. But anyways, uh, uh, he was a chaplain with them, and so... It devastated him because he also had a pastor's heart for the people. He was a chaplain for these young men, knew them personally, and they were routed in that particular battle. He came back then convinced that uh, this was wrong and was then beginning to try to bring around change uh, in, in this. And, and it wasn't real popular because that was a major industry of those little towns as you'd have these mercenaries. That's how they, they got their money. And he started speaking against that, and that was not, uh, that was not popular. And he also then was influenced by Erasmus because Erasmus was very anti-war. And he would produce these little pamphlets and Ulrich Zwingli would uh, read these pamphlets and he became even more influenced uh, by that. So he, was, he eventually became very anti-war and certainly against the mercenaries uh, that would come out of that area. Uh, during this time also, Zwingli began to amass an uh, impressive library including the first copy... Uh, or the one of the first copies of the Greek New Testament that was produced by Erasmus. In 1516, he met Erasmus in person. And so he was, you know, enamored. In fact, as time went on, he became more and more enamored with the man, and it was a thrill for him to be able to meet him in person. And then as a result of that, he started to teach himself Greek. Uh, he, wanted, he taught himself and became very, very fluent in Greek so he could be able to read uh, the New Testament that was produced by Erasmus. He taught himself Hebrew. Uh, obviously studied the Bible. In fact, some of our sources, and again, I uh, appreciate Dale Hearn for pulling out some of these things for me and, and sending me some emails of things that he dug up on Ulrich Zwingli. Helped me a lot. One of the things that he sent me was that he used to study standing up. And so he would study up. He'd get up early in the hours of the morning. He would study, and he would study Latin. He would study Greek. He would study the Bible. He would study the classics. He would study the writings of Erasmus. I mean, he was uh, a diligent, disciplined student. And then he would take some time uh, out and he would have an early lunch and then he'd come back to his studies and then uh, his study was on the second floor of his house and then he'd come downstairs, meet with parishioners, counsel with them, you know, pray with them and so forth and then he'd go right back up and start studying again. These, these, these men during the Reformation uh, were amazingly disciplined. Uh, you know, so, you know, uh, um, I'm, okay, mine's, I've got a blank here again, but what is it... Uh, uh, God, oh yeah, you know, the, the mistaken idea that there is a verse in the Bible that says God helps those who help themselves. You know, it's not in there. It's not in the Bible, but that sometimes kind of gets out there. Because um, that's not, we, we are saved obviously by grace and there's nothing that we can do to earn that. However, God does reward our work and God does reward our diligence. And I really believe that the reason why he used these men like Melanchthon and Luther and Zwingli and John Calvin and so forth, was because they were disciplined and they were diligent to study his word. You may not agree with everything they came out with. I don't agree with Zwingli on everything, or Calvin or Luther, for sure. But the reason why he used them in such an amazing way was because they were diligent and they showed themselves approved. Um, 
I think I said that. Or he uh, studied the writings of the church fathers. On Saturday, January 1st, 1519. By the way, when was, when was Ulrich born? It was the 1st of January. It was on his birthday. Preached his first sermon as the people's priest in Grossmünster Church in Zurich. And if the church is still there today. In fact, it's one of the four major churches in that town. Uh, the distinguishing two towers that go up. Uh, and now, it's kind of interesting because, you know, these, these guys, it's important, even though we may not agree theologically with them and all, uh, it's also important to point out that they weren't perfect either. They were not always pure as the driven snow, okay? In fact, when he was picked and, they, and everybody wanted him to become the, uh, the, the priest of, the, uh, of uh, Grossmonster, um, there was a little bit of a problem because uh, somebody raised the issue that there was a rumor that was going around that he had fathered a child a few years back. And so they started looking into it. And, of course, uh, he vehemently denied it. Whenever they said, you know, she was a nobleman's daughter and there's a child and all, he said, that is not true. That is not true. She was a barber's daughter. And, um, and she had the reputation of being out there and thrown out of the house. And so therefore, there's no way to tell whose child that was. You know, not really a strong case. Uh, certainly not one I think Mark Lanier would make on his behalf. He'd want a little bit more substantial evidence. Uh, but then he came again to his defense and he said, And by the way, let it be known that I would never uh, violate a nun, a virgin, or the marriage bed. So uh, he, had a, he admitted that sometimes that was a weakness of his in the area of morality and, and sleeping with people. But the reason he got the job was because the, the closest guy that was in contention for it, the priest, it was known that he had three concubines and already fathered eight children. So they figured, hey, you know, Zingli at least seems to be honest about it and he's trying hard... <laughs> So let him get the position. It's amazing. You know, it's amazing. But anyways, they weren't, they weren't perfect people. It was on his 35th birthday when he took the place in the cathedral pulpit and began his sermon by saying, this is on Saturday, he began his sermon, it is to Christ that I desire to lead you, to Christ, the true source of salvation. His divine word is the only food that I wish to set before your hearts and souls. And so once again, you see... Uh, the heart of the pastor coming out. And, and, you know, the thing is, even though he gave, and I was telling you about his supposedly weak defense that he gave on his behalf as far as morality, all evidence shows is that he did diligently wrestle with that area of his life. And he didn't just accept it and he didn't just explain it away. In fact, he eventually did marry and the, uh, the word was that he was a very good husband and a very good father as well. But he, had a, he truly wanted to see the people Know the Word of God. Not long after he'd gotten there, the same year, the later, latter part of that year, a terrible plague hit Zurich. More than a fourth of the 7,000 residents died. Can you imagine that? That a fourth of the population of a town would just be wiped out by this terrible plague. He said it was so horrible that they couldn't dig the graves fast enough so they would stack the bodies. They said it was like cords of wood along the sides of the roads. So can you imagine going out of your house and walking down the devastation that was right there uh, for, for you to see and to be confronted with. 
But the most devastating thing to Uric, in fact, when he was ministering as a pastor, he was exposing himself regularly, but he was ministering to the flock, and eventually he did get the plague, and it took him three months to recover. But the most devastating thing to Uric is that his younger brother, Andrew, uh, was stricken with the, with the uh, plague and eventually died. And he was very, very fond of his younger brother. Now, what are some of the similarities and the differences between Zwingli and Luther? And we're going to get more in depth in this here in just a minute, but just kind of at the beginning. First of all, the word about Luther was getting out pretty quickly. and His books were being circulated. People were reading his books. Zwingli did not read any of his books, uh, but he encouraged his people to. So he had, a, he had a respect for Luther, but he just personally did not really read any of his material, read any of his books. He kept hearing all the reports uh, coming out of Wittenberg and around the area, out of Germany. Um, but he encouraged his flock to read him. You know, this is good. He's, he's a scholar. He's, a, he's a, 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 um, a worthy to be read. So what are some of the differences and what are some of the similarities between Luther and Zwingli? Well, first of all, they were both Catholics. Luther was a monk, Catholic monk. Zwingli was a Catholic priest. Um, they both had a problem, obviously, with the excesses of the Catholic Church, with the indulgences and the abuses of power as far as the Pope. Uh, also believing that, uh, uh, that he is, is not infallible. He is not the final word. He's not the final say in, in, in matters. And also, uh, sola scriptura. The, the, that Scripture is the sole base of our authority in knowing God and walking in Him. So that, that the Scriptures are the base of our faith. And that we come to faith in Christ or, or, or we receive His grace, we receive salvation by faith in coming to Him and by His grace, unmerited. Uh, both of them were believed in, in predestination. In other words, that uh, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, and, it's, and it's, uh, His righteousness is given to us. But there are some differences because Zwingli was a, a humanist, and that didn't necessarily have the same meaning then as it does today. A humanist today means, well, man is the center of the universe and we are the highest form of intelligence and there is no God. Well, a humanist in that day, that's not what that meant. A humanist was one that appreciated the humanities and was influenced by the humanities and uh, appreciated the languages, the Greek and the Latin and studied the church fathers and, and studied the philosophers, the ancient Greek philosophers and so forth. So, Zwingli came at it more from an intellectual perspective, came to faith more from intellectual. Not that, he, that you ascend, uh, uh, that, that there's a, an ascent to then believing, but that you come at it more from an intellectual perspective and you study the Scriptures and it's a reasonable faith. But Martin Luther came at it more from his heart. You know, he would have an experience and he just knew that it was true because of his experience. And he, exper and he, and he, was, and he was passionate uh, about... Uh, about his, his faith and, and his relationship with Christ. And so there was a slight difference uh, when that comes, uh, comes into play. But later on we'll see that they even had a stronger difference when it came to the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Now, the major event that sparked the Swiss Reformation happened on March 12, 1522. And uh, we're going to look at the passage of Scripture here just a minute very quickly. What happened was... There was a printer that had been working all night. This was Lent, okay? So you were supposed to fast, and you were not supposed to obviously eat anything that was deemed unclean by the Scriptures. And so 
and we know where sausages come from. And so anyways, he had been working all night. The crew was worn out and all. And so he was, a, uh, he was part of the, uh, the flock of Ulrich Zwingli. He had been learning from him for a couple years. And Ulrich Zwingli taught that there is no authority over you except the Scriptures and, and the law of God according to the Scriptures. And so uh, he wanted to do something nice for his workers. They'd been working so hard. They had this major printing job that they were trying to get out by the weekend. And there was going to be a, a major celebration that was going to be coming. And so he thought he was going to do something nice. So he asked his wife to, to fix up some sausages and bring it down to the crew and, 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 and let them partake. And so they ate of it. Well, they had broken Lent. And so then the, the uh, city council found out about it. Remember now, this is a Catholic town. And so they're all up in arms about it. And so they come and uh, they you know, say, what is this? And they have a hearing and they finally get the uh, area bishop to come in and they have this big long hearing and they have Ulrich Zwingli come there. And he, guess what? He comes to the defense of the printer because the printer said, well, we just did what our pastor said that we could do all along. And so then they turn to Ulrich Zwingli and they say, on what basis do you allow them to do this? And here's the passages of Scripture that he used. So if you have your Bible and look to uh, Acts chapter 10, he obviously took the occasion of Peter when Peter had the vision and he was on top of the rooftop. And God was going to do a work in Peter's heart to prepare him to go and take the gospel to who? Cornelius, okay? And Cornelius obviously was a Gentile. And here's the passage. And it says in verse 10, And he became hungry and was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he beheld the sky opened up, and a certain object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Oh no, or by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. The other passage, obviously, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's the words of Paul where he says in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So those were the two primary passages that he used in explaining this to the bishop. Now, it's interesting. That should have been obvious, don't you think? Some